Only when we realize science communication is for everyone, only then can we create a future for us. Hi, I'm your host, Joelle Alexandria, and this is A Future For Us, where I conduct audio documentaries, interviews, and stories as it pertains to us in our modern world. Check out our Instagram, A Future For Us, and for inquiries, email afutureforus99 at gmail.com. If you want to get to know me a little more, follow my public account at joelle.a.alexandria, J-O-E-L-L-E, and my Twitter at wjoelle. Today's episode is about science communication, featuring special guests, Dr. Gavin Tolometti, a postdoctorate fellow at Western University and host of the podcast, The Diaries of Space Explorers. The Diaries of Space Explorers is a podcast that makes space accessible for everyone by featuring special guests in the space industry who tell stories of their experiences, discovering new things, and how interdisciplinary the STEM field can be. STEM stands for Science, Technology, Engineering, and Math. Join us as we explore what it's like to obtain a PhD, being a science communicator, whether or not science is universal, and why people find STEM hard. Welcome to part one. What is science communication? According to contemporary definitions, and my personal opinion, science communication is the use of appropriate skills in media and dialogue to raise awareness around science-related matters. Hi, welcome to A Future For Us. My name is Joel Alexandria, your host, and I have a special guest. Uh, my name is Gavin Tolometti. I'm a postdoctorate researcher at the University of Western Ontario in planetary science, and it's also the same location where I got my PhD just over six months ago. Awesome. And you're also a fellow podcaster, right? Yes, I am. I am the podcast host and creator of the Dives Space Explorers, where we aim to bridge the gap between the space sector and the public. Wow, thank you so much for coming on to talk to me. It's like just behind the scenes talking to you and like seeing your podcast and listening to it. It's really been really cool. So yeah, I definitely appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's safe to say that if you got your PhD, like you loved like science, right? Or mm-hmm. is that kind of an assumption? No, definitely. I think ever since I was 13, I really got into science. Uh, it started off with just chemistry. Uh, chemistry was actually the science field that got me more and more into this field. I didn't really get into planetary science until the final year of my undergrad when I took a course where one of the lessons was trying to compare the interiors of Mars and Venus and just getting to understand the ways that we can study the interiors of planetary bodies without physically touching them, I think just blew my mind at that point. And it made me want to figure out how can we learn more about our own planet and at the same time, other planetary bodies that are within our solar system. And I think from there, I started to look around, like, where could I find the next step towards this after my undergrad? How could I pursue this field? And that's what led me to the University of Western Ontario in London, Ontario. And I started to get my PhD in geology and planetary science, and now doing my own independent research in planetary science as a postdoc. Nice. So I think in the PhD community, there's been a lot of like push to demystify it, especially on um, Instagram and TikTok. And I really appreciate that because when people think PhD, they think, oh my goodness, I can never 
but what's something that you found was um, easier than you expected when getting your PhD? Or if there's no such thing, then please let us know. I don't think I really went into my PhD being surprised that something was easier. I think when I went in I, and part halfway through it, I started to learn more about what I was able to develop, what skills I actually was able to develop more going into PhD. The biggest one was definitely time management because versus a full-time job, normally when you have your nine to five, let's say, you know almost exactly what you're going to do. You have your tasks that either your boss or the company lays on you and you know what's going to happen either just today or even throughout the next month. The PhD, you know what the end goal is to write your thesis and then defend your thesis in front of a committee. And you know, you should know, hopefully most of the time, that we have a hypothesis or a goal in mind that we're trying to answer. The thing is, there's so many different steps in between there that you have to figure out how to achieve all those steps to get to your end goal. Your supervisor is there to advise you, but most of the time isn't there to hold your hand and guide you there. You're trying to show that you can do this independently. And so and one of the best ways to do that is that you have to manage your time very efficiently. Uh, it's a little bit of a transition from undergrad where you have the nomenclature of having to do all polonitis to pass exams. It's almost completely different. The other side of the coin, I would say with a PhD, you could pull out nidus. That doesn't really achieve you much, at least what I found um, with my PhD. And getting the highest grades is no longer the biggest concern that you would have, that you don't have to be the top of your class. You just have to be willing to show that you love, you're passionate about the project that you're working on. You're able to figure out problems. It doesn't have to be very quickly. You can figure them out in your own pace but you're showing one that you are very independent and two, you're able to manage your time correctly because there's, I remember in my undergrad, there were a lot of people I knew who were very smart, but I don't mean any offense to them, were the worst time management people I've ever met because they'd either leave everything to the last minute and then complain about everything coming together or they would not work when they should be working and then everything came down to the night before, which is essentially the same thing, but. The difference is I think they were either too relaxed and others were just too much, too headstrong to going towards, it needs to be last minute or else I'm not gonna be able to focus. So that's probably the biggest thing I learned from my PhD. I think that's just important to have good time management skills like in life in general. And it's really good that we get that perspective from a PhD student because it really starts to demystify the process. I feel like when you think about like school, you think about it in one certain way where it's like block time. Time's already allotted to you, so you don't really have to do anything except the work. But mm -hmm. in, when you're getting your PhD, am I correct in kind of assuming that you have to do it all? Like, you know, manage, find the work, do the work, and put it all together? Usually, yeah, you have to show that you can put all the work together and have everything organized and ready to go. There's always the few exceptions where there are some uh, methods or routines that are out of your control. It can only come down to lab booking, uh, calibrating instruments, or organizing uh, logistics to do field work. Sometimes that is out of your control and usually comes down to your supervisor or perhaps a postdoc or another professor at the university that you're studying in. But I'd say 99% of the time, you are in control of your projects. Uh, the, there, you do hear some PhD story, uh, students say that they actually don't have as much control of their project because it sometimes depends where the money's coming from. If your professor's getting money from a company, 
then you usually have to go by their routine, which I don't think that's healthy for a PhD because industry and academia have two different end goals. They're the same end goal, but they have two completely different methods of how to get there, which can really cause a lot of frustration or unnecessary stress. But I would say just to, hopefully it wasn't rambling too much, but just to say that, yes, that you do have, most of the time you have full control to do um, everything during your PhD. Would you consider yourself more a science educator or a science communicator? I think if I had to pick between the two, and I would use, I would still say this very leniently, I would probably say a science communicator. Mm -hmm. Only because I do use my podcast and my platform to communicate um, space exploration and why it's important, what we can learn from it, and how different people have gotten to this sector. I wouldn't say I'm an educator because I haven't really, I don't dedicate the amount of time that I think other educators do, do put towards trying to explain different concepts to people. But I'd say with science communication, communicator, at least through my podcast, yes, I would definitely say so. And when did you start your podcast? I started my podcast, funny enough, eight months before I defended my PhD. So for, um, in hindsight, probably wasn't the best time to start it. Uh, it was it was two things that really motivated. One, I was really into podcasting ever since I joined uh, my university grad student podcast known as GradCast. And I started to learn a lot about what a podcast really is, how you create one, how you would learn how to actively listen to guests so you can either think of conversations and questions as the show is going on or how you would edit a podcast afterwards to really try and understand what is it you need to do to make the podcast sound as fluent, fluid as possible. And the second motivation was when the pandemic hits, I really lost all uh, science communication and outreach connections because we couldn't go into schools, we couldn't attend events. So we were very limited to social media and online platforms. I tried social media for a little bit, but I'm very bad at being consistent enough for it to be effective. And there's already a lot of amazing science communicators that use Instagram and TikTok to actually promote science. But I thought podcasting is still, I won't say it's new, it's a very saturated uh, platform. There's a lot of different podcasts for a lot of different topics, some very broad, some very niche. But I thought there's still not many space-based that try to just talk to members of the space community and ask them what is it that brought them to feel the space and how they can actually connect it to helping people on earth because i still feel like there those some some platforms still focus either too much on the science or too much on the engineering industry aspect which is very appealing to some audiences but i think for the overall general population that they don't see many connections with them because it doesn't they don't ever explain how this has any relevance to their daily lives which is a very valid point to make because if if someone's talking about a topic but they don't make any indication of why you should care about it you can't really blame the audience then for saying like this isn't i don't see how this will be relevant to me so and that's really what got me to thinking like a podcast i think would be really good because i know i i'm decent i was decent at podcasting at the time i knew how the the system worked although i have learned it's a lot harder to run one by yourself compared to if you have a team but i think i have been able to reach out to quite a few people using the podcast and i'm hoping throughout this summer and maybe into the next year, I'll be able to expand it even more. How does your podcast bridge that gap for um, just applying science literacy and making sure people know that this is applicable in their lives? <laughs> well, I think the, the first thing I had to think of was if I was to talk about space with different uh, guests, 
I had to think, how can we actually connect this back to the general public? And one of the big things that I do try to talk to talk about as much as I can in each episode is spin-off technology, because it is technology that was one that was originally developed for space missions or applications, but was then adapted back for using it on Earth. And we use a lot of the common ones. Uh, GPS is one of the biggest ones that we know. The small camera in your smartphone is also a spin-off technology. You've got the bike helmets, the material used have also been used also originally developed for crash test dummies used for space exploration. You've got Velcro, memory foam, and you've even got some of the uh, sensors and alarm systems in hospitals that were initially used to monitor the health of astronauts during the Apollo era. So that was also adapted back there. And you've got laser eye surgery. So this is like an endless list that is always released every year through NASA and their spin-off technology document that explains all the different new technology pieces, techniques, or methods using to improve life on Earth that came initially from either a space mission directly or something that was being designed for an experiment on the International Space Station or just in a lab, but then they adapted it back to maybe a company can use it or it can be used in hospitals, healthcare, or other types of industry. So that's something I really try to highlight most of the time in my podcast, but at the same time, I use it I usually are just there to be a moderator and a conduit for the guests to really express their story of what, how they got into space exploration, because sometimes their journey could then resonate with someone who's maybe in a similar position to them when they were younger, or they have a career, a career position currently that someone wants to get to, and they want to hear how this person was able to get there. What, what, what do you think your audience is for your podcast? Like who listens to it the most is it people in the scientific community or in the academic community or just regular people or sorry regular people not <laughs> not to say anything about people who aren't in those fields but people who don't generally um work or observe or study <laughs> science every day you know that's actually a very good question and i actually don't have a answer for that um it's something i probably have to look into i know I could probably do a poll on Instagram to maybe figure out just roughly uh, who's listening to the podcast. But one thing I do know is I could I could definitely trace where the, the podcast is being listened to. And I know my major of my listeners are Canadian and American, uh, but I have been slowly trying to branch more in towards Europe and I've been trying to get into the more on the um, less developed countries because I want to make sure that space is for everyone. And we do need to bridge the gap to the, when I say the public, I mean the, the global public, not just the public that invests the most of their time in space exploration, which is usually NASA, Japan, ESA, and uh, the CSA in Canada. So I want to try and make sure that everyone is being included um, in this message. And so I can't say exactly what what type of people are listening to it, but I can try and figure it, probably figure that out soon and maybe give you an answer uh, later on after this episode's aired. But I can definitely say I hope it's a good mix. It would be nice to have a good mix of listeners instead of maybe just having one particular group that's listening to it, because then I know that I need to do a bit better at trying to make the podcast more accessible for everyone and not just making it accessible for one uh, group in particular. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely finding that as well, because I, I find that people, people gravitate to things like they're already in. So like, I have a unique situation where even though I do science communication and um, environmental journalism, my peers are in like completely different things. But since they support me, they listen to the podcast and they're like, well, I didn't know this stuff. So I feel like surrounding myself with different people definitely helps. 
but also I find a large portion of people in my program now who are in science, like the, um, who are in academia and do science communication as well, listening. So I try to promote a healthy mix. How do you think we can get rid of, or we can bridge that gap so more people from different communities are listening to science communication? I think the best way is you try to have as many conversations as possible with as many different members of the space sector community because it's completely different from what it was like five years ago when people would think, okay, if you want to get into space, you either have to be an engineer, you have to be a scientist, or you have to be an administrator, which now we know is definitely not true at all. But yes, there's definitely those three, there's still those three pillars, the main two still being engineering and science, but we're already seeing there's many new people being introduced into the space community, such as we have people from agriculture, culinary skills, music, arts, uh, education, journalism, lawyers, uh, and an endless list of people that are starting to come into the space sector and apply their expertise and knowledge to solving problems that engineers and scientists can't solve or don't have the right background to be able to solve. And I think science communicators and educators are a really big help because one thing I think that still a lot of scientists and engineers struggle with is trying to talk about their work or a mission to people outside of their bubble because they were trained to talk technical to their teams so they can get the right information across to, let's say, a board or to their boss. So they were trained to only talk a certain way. And when they get asked to talk a different way, they either go way too technical and no one can understand what they mean so that no one really listens and no one will, no one will take, take one, no one will grasp the take home message. Or they might maybe use too much layman's terms and then the audience might start to think like, do they think that we're not knowledgeable at all? Or do they think that we're not clever enough to understand what they're doing? You need someone who's, you need people who are one, able to read audiences, two, able to communicate complex concepts to people that don't study these fields. At the same time, you also need people from different backgrounds that might be able to better explain these ideas to people. Because if it's a, trying to explain, let's say the, the music of the solar system, a scientist might be good good to have, but I think you definitely need someone who has a music background who's studying space because then they can actually talk more about the music side of these projects versus a scientist who might still briefly talk about the music side, what they already know, but then just go de deep into the science and then completely lose the audience. So I do think that we just need to have more, more conversations with different members of the space community and also try to have them have conversations with each other. Because I still think that's one thing that still needs to be worked on we have seen private sectors, commercial sectors, and academic centers start to grow more, especially the commercial side in space exploration. But I do still think that each considers themselves their own unique sector, just all studying space, where it should just be they're all part of one sector. But I think until that, those bubbles, for those bubbles to be broken, uh, I mean, there needs to be more conversations and probably more collaborations between them because I think if they just collaborate only with themselves and rarely with each other, we're not really going to, we can't really call ourselves a full space community. We can just call ourselves people that work in space, but we don't, but we essentially, you work in different cities, but you're all trying to work, achieve the same goal. Mm. Yeah, I never really thought about it like that. And something I'm learning right now in my classes is that um, even though science is, 
Is it okay to say science is universal? Um, <coughs> sorry. Um, I don't know if I would say universal because I still think each science field still has, even within science, there's still work that needs to be done when it comes to talking with each other. Mm. Say, and space is one of the best places for this to occur because there's a lot of interdisciplinary work in planetary science in particular. But I don't know if I'd say universal. Mm. I think of a good different word for it. Hmm. Maybe broad. Maybe because science is so broad that there's so many different sectors you can work in. I'd say, yeah, I think broad is probably a good one. Hmm. There's so many things you can apply it to that, like, sometimes when you apply it to two different things for two different industries, you think, oh, it must be different. But I think sometimes it's the same. It's just maybe the goal is a little bit different, too. And I feel as though another barrier is that people think for science and math and sometimes it just STEM. You have to be inclined in that field or you have to be gifted in it. So I had a professor who would say, usually this course, the average is a C, but there are people like two or three people who always manage to get an A in this course. And I feel as though like those two or three people are the ones that are might be inclined to, to do well in it or test well in it. But I feel that it might be a turnoff for a lot of people because then it's like, oh, if I'm not inclined, maybe I shouldn't do it. And a lot of discouragement. Did you ever feel that way in university? I would say in university, no. I mean, being at a, I've, my undergrad was through the United Kingdom system. And the one thing I have learned, at least from TAing in a Canadian system that the British system was definitely more brutal when it came to marking. I mean, I remember our average was between 60 to 65% in almost all assignments. And it wasn't because they were trying to be evil. It's just that they were very critical with a lot of their marking, which I found over here. At least the courses I happened to TA, I can't say for all of Canada and all universities. I just found it a very lean. Everyone was a lot more lenient when it came to errors. So that was a learning curve for me because I feel like my first TA, I was that TA that was super harsh because I thought, well, this is how I was graded as an undergrad. So I assumed it was the same everywhere. Uh, but I do think that the, yes, I do say that a lot of those courses that professors say like, oh yeah, only one or two of you are gonna get A's, the rest of you are gonna probably get C's or if not lower. That's definitely one of the reasons why I think STEM can sometimes be a turnoff because why would you wanna put yourself through that much stress to, not even guarantee you're going to get a B. Even if you worked super hard, it's almost as if the professor's written, designed the course in a way that I don't want all of, a lot of you to get high grades. I need you to keep you in the middle, which shouldn't really be the way it works. But it, that comes, I think, becomes a little bit more science, the political side of um, academia, which a lot of people, as students and postdocs especially, don't want to get involved in because it's a mess on its own. Uh, but I will say for me, university, I never had that issue. When I was in high school, actually, I had one teacher say that if if I continue to, to write the way I do now, I will never get anything published or have anything worth um, reading. So because I did struggle to write, not just creatively, but also scientifically when I was in high school and a little bit in undergrad. It wasn't until I started my PhD, my supervisor, Dr. Catherine Nish, I started to get access to the resources and the advice and the the blunt constructive criticism I needed to improve 
instead of just negative criticism and said like this is terrible this is not how you should write because no one learns that no one can really learn like, like that except for maybe someone who's maybe wanting to prove everyone wrong but I would say that because that was the worst I have experienced I think I'd say in academia but it also depends on how you take the criticism I mean I was told I could I would not be able to publish anything the way I write. I now have two papers that are published in uh, high peer review journals. So it shows what you can do with determination and willing to find ways to improve your weaknesses. And I knew for me, writing was my biggest weakness. In high school, it's definitely more, more encouraging to do, to stay like where you're, where you're good or stay at the root. How do I say it? I felt more encouraged to pursue what I was good at instead of mm-hmm. what I was like bad at. Yeah. And university definitely changed that because now, or if, if you don't declare your major, you get kind of a well-rounded experience. If you do, you still get challenged definitely. So I feel as though university is a good place to really get out of your comfort zone and just stop with the handholding, but also develop relationships that are not more that are that are more encouraging you to fail I guess Mm -hmm. encouraging you to really just push the bounds of what you thought you could do so I really appreciate that about university also I did notice you had an accent but I thought it was Australian (laughs) yeah I've been mistaken for Australian before I'm originally from the United Kingdom but I'm a military brat so my dad was in the royal air force so we actually lived in canada united states and france for a little bit in addition to england and scotland so my accent as a kid got a little bit mixed up and jumbled it's like a british accent with a north american twist on it that, that's really that's really parlez-vous français uh je n'ai pas parlé français uh mo- Mon français est... uh, yeah, it's very rusty. Like I haven't really been able to practice my French properly in a while. So it's actually something I'm trying to work on this summer. Yeah, I, I can't, I, I just know parlez-vous français because <laughs> I didn't, I didn't um, learn French as my second language in school. So I might want to do that if I want to stay in Canada. Yeah. Um, so what are you looking forward to in terms of your podcast and teaching people about different aspects of of the space industry and space science? I'd say one of the big things I want to do is to continue to connect with more new guests that are in completely unusual fields in the space sector, just to show, continue to prove to the audience that there are many different ways you can become involved in the space sector. I've seen a lot of people when they're now looking at biomedical medicine, agriculture, food production, uh, looking more into other ways of journalism, international policies outside of North America. There just seems to be so many different things that we can do. And I'm hoping with my guests that I'll be able to actually show that. And I think another big thing I'm wanting to do is try to connect with more audience members outside of the areas where I'm getting most of my downloads. Uh, as I said, like, North America seems to be where I'm getting a lot of them, which makes sense because I publish them during these um, time zones. So I'm hoping that I'll be able to find ways to try and branch out more and connect with more communities. And that's always the hardest part because you can use social media, but it's very easy for your content to be get saturated or lost throughout the millions of posts or other podcasters or influencers are trying to do very similar uh, 
uh, networking and advertising. So I'm hoping I can find ways to reach out to more people. Maybe you connect to people and have them share information and content with members of their community or try to find ways I can use social media a bit more effectively. Mm -hmm. So what's one thing that you definitely want people to take away from your part from your podcast, no matter what episode? I think the biggest takeaway message I would like my audiences to take to have from each episode is to really understand that space is for everyone. It's not just and I don't say this just in the, the cliche way we're thinking like, well, yes, because we're all part of the solar system, so space is for everyone. What I mean by that is no one should feel discouraged to, to pursue a field in space uh, exploration or in the space sector or industry, just regardless of their background or education or social economic status or belief or anything at all. Everyone has the right to pursue a career in space and no one should ever have to feel bar experience barriers or to ever feel that they're not worthy to get involved in space. And that's why I want everyone to feel every time they listen to some, one of my guests speak about their journey, they've all gone through different ways to get involved in space. Some are for very traditional methods, some are not so traditional methods, some experience more hardships than others. But the main takeaway point is that everyone has the right to get involved in space. And that's one of the ways you can make space more accessible between with the general public is just to show that it, anyone can, if you put your heart and soul into it, you can have a career in space. You don't have to just go down the typical STEM routes if you're not in, very encouraged or inspired by STEM. There are other ways to get involved in space. And if, you, and if you are inspired by STEM, amazing. But there's just, you don't have to go through the traditional route of becoming a planetary scientist. There are many things you can do that would be involved, that involves STEM in space exploration. You don't have to just go hardcore science. You can do a mixture of science and journalism for one. You could do a mixture of science and engineering, science and arts. There's many different fields. It just comes down to what is it you want to do and then show the space sector, I can bring that, I can give this to the community to help help us move forward. And I think that's one thing I definitely want all my audience members to take away. Excellent. Well, thank you for speaking with me today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Thank you so much for having me on. This was a great conversation. Awesome. I appreciate Dr. Gavin Tolometti for making this episode possible. Please check out Dr. Tolometti's podcast, The Diaries of Space Explorers, for stories from astronauts and space communication specialists and more. Thank you for tuning into part one of this episode. If you like what you hear, follow us on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever else you listen. Keep streaming to hear part two. try something that I didn't that I've never done before can we like can we say it together yeah we can try it okay okay all right okay okay ready one two three only only when we realize, realize science science communication <laughs> uh should we try it again <laughs> oh yes yes okay um one two three only only when we realize, realize 
science, science communication, communication is, is for, for everyone. everyone. Only, Only then can, can we create a future, a future for, for us. us. All right. That was a little bit choppy, but I think it'll be a cool blooper. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Very well put. All right. I'm going to stop the recording.